0: This is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. Today, I am so happy to welcome legendary set designer Peter Harvey to the podcast. His design credits include the original off-Broadway productions of The Boys in the Band, Dames at Sea, and The Mad Show. He also worked off-Broadway on original plays by Thornton Wilder, Joyce Carol Oates, Terence McNally, John Guare, Sam Shepard, Shelley Winters, and more. He started his career on Broadway as a set assistant on Redhead, Fiorello, Once Upon a Mattress, and Keen. And went on to design the costumes and sets for Baby Want to Kiss, Johnny Johnson, Sextet, The Black Picture Show, The Effect of Gamma Rays on Man in the Moon Marigolds, Park, and served as scenic supervisor for the Rocky Horror Picture Show. He also worked for the New York City Ballet, most famously on the original production of George Balanchine's Jewels. So, without further ado, here he is, Peter Harvey. Um, so, I want to ask you first how you first got interested in design?
1: How? I was thinking about that today at breakfast to myself because I'm figuring you might ask me that. Well, when I was about five, I I was living in England with my grandmother, and we went to what is a traditional Christmas event, which was a, a, a pantomime, a children's pantomime. Oh. You may have heard, you know what they are? Yes, yes. Yeah, you do. Okay. And this one was Dick Whittington and his cat. Uh oh. And in it, I saw people jumping out of the trapdoors in the ground. Oh. I saw someone in a cat costume jumping around and being funny. I saw uh, a great gilded galleon sailing and moving across the back of the stage and people getting into it. I saw ballerinas on wires flying through the air and dancing on the stage and then flying off. And then bells ringing and did the whole story of Dick Whittington, which I knew before my eyes and funny, you know, and his, I think his mother was the pantomime dame and she was very funny. And that sort of stirred my interest in seeing these magic, magical things on stage. Yeah. Then uh, I also, I was going to a sort of uh, wasn't quite kindergarten, but first grade or something, and they had a stage in, in the school, and I remember we went onto it for something. Well, we just walked across it. And there was scenery hung around, painted scenery of a woodland or something, old-fashioned painted scenery, which mm-hmm. uh, intrigued me. And then I remember on stage, on the floor, was a, tr- a uh, what they obviously used to sit on, but it was a fake uh, stump of a tree, a chopped-down tree, and I just touched it and sat on it and looked at it. And it, here was this convincing trunk of a tree but it was of course uh, not real it was uh, made by hand you know and that always stayed in my mind as something quite marvelous for some reason then uh i had no exposure to much theater where, where we lived in central america but i was my aunt i had uh she was actually my father's aunt but she had uh She taught school in Wales and she would send me books on the theatre and magazines about the theatre from time to time. She encouraged my interest. Because she she was sort of stage-struck herself. And she used to claim, which I'm sure was true, that uh, she was a school teacher there in Neath, uh, South Wales. And she said that Raymond Lann, who was a movie star at the time, had been one of her students. Oh. She was she was very proud of that. Anyway, then later, when I was in my teens, about 15 years old, uh, we went back to England to visit my grandmother and uh, other relatives, uncles and aunts and so forth. And my mother and I went to a, a series of uh, shows uh, on the, in the West End, we went to the uh, uh, Brigadoon, for instance, uh, which had that uh, wonderful uh, tree set and they were running when they pursued uh, Harry Beaton, I think was the character. But the most important thing, I went, we the op- went to the opera, Covent Garden, I, I saw Handel, Handel Opera Alcina which was very grand and I, I liked it because I was enamored of, of uh, seven, 18th century, 17th century things for some reason. And then, but then we saw the famous uh, Arthur Miller play, Death of a Salesman. Oh. And that had this brilliant, brilliant, if you know your, your history or books, this Joe Milzener set. Of this skeleton house, which changed, you know, uh, set you went, you had, you went back in time. There were flashbacks and so on, and then, but whenever they went back in time, uh, Melzina had this lighting effect, which was a leaf. Which was what what I, since since discovered and have used them myself, a leaf gobo. So the stage was filled with the patterns as if sunlight was coming through leaves, which oh. I'm sure you've seen. Okay. But it was magical for me, and was just extraordinary. That the the house, the fact that he could create this house so minimally, and then this pattern the, the leaf pattern of the leaf projections, which was so beautiful, you know, and, and such a so evocative. And, uh, anyway, yeah. so those were the things that sort of. Uh, led me to be, certainly led me to be interested in in stage design. And then what really got me into it was when I started in college at the University of Miami, and I was an arts major. I mean, I thought I was going to be an artist, which I, I guess I am, but uh, I was in the art department uh, studying painting and drawing and all of that. And uh, somehow I knew this... Uh, Oh, this woman, this girl, in school with me, who later became a, a press agent for Hal Prince here in New York, oh. oddly enough, Mary Bryant. But okay. anyway, uh, I knew her through another a fellow who I had met. Anyway, who was who was the theater, had a theater kind of theater theatrical character there in the college.
0: Yeah.
1: and she was. Uh, they had a program at the university. Of what the, it took place in a sort of bl- black box theater. It was a little a proper theater, it was not a black box, a room like they have them nowadays. Oh, but it, yeah, yeah. But it was a proper small theater, typical sort of the size of an off Broadway theater with a the proscenium stage and everything. And she was doing a play, and then in in that box theater, the school, uh, the, the program, the theater program had arranged. Uh, Plays that were written by the students were produced and they were directed and acted in and designed by the students. It was a total student oh. operation, you see. Yes. Yeah. Which was a wonderful uh, uh, way for the students to be involved and, in, you know, to do things in the theater, to write, to act, to direct, and so forth. And she asked me, nobody was interested, of course, in doing scenery. They all wanted to be actors. Oh. Uh, and so she, uh, knowing me, she knew, knowing I was an artist, she asked me if I would design a set for her for this play, which was a, a concoction about, oh, I think the Duke of Buckingham and his mistress or something in the reign of Charles II, oh. which, of course, I, being a history buff and British history buff particularly, knew all about, and so I thought it was just wonderful and fascinating. And so I said, well, sure, I'd love to do that. And so, of course, you had minimal, minimal money and everything. But so I did a, I did a set uh, for her, and that, that really got me going. And from then on, I, I just did scenery. I sort of withdrew from the art department, although I did continue with drawing and painting classes. But I was more and more over at the theater department, which was, uh, in those days, the theater department was they had a, a theater in the round. The Ring Theater, which was considered quite revolutionary and and, and you know avant-garde in those days in the fifties, yeah, and uh, it has since been labeled. They've because Jerry Herman was uh, in school with me at that time. He was uh-huh. a, a year ahead of me. He was graduating and I was a freshman, but. Uh, that theater, the Ring Theater, where I did so much work in my school years, has been renamed the Jerry Herman Theater, which is kind of funny, yeah. I think. I don't, I don't know if he gave them any money, but anyway, because he was such a big name. And he did act there. He acted in, oh, they did, um, he played a leprechaun. What was the, the, that musical?
0: Um, Finian's Rainbow?
1: That's no. right, Finian's Rainbow. He played the leprechaun. And yeah, so uh, and I remember, I remember that of course because I saw it naturally. Anyway, <clears throat> I continued working there in the Ring Theater uh, mm-hmm. while I was in college, learning about scenery and uh, building and painting and design, designing some of the couple of the productions and always working on them and so forth. Yeah. And so uh, that was how it all developed.
0: So. At what point did you start pursuing it after college in terms of, I know the Coconut Grove
1: Playhouse was an early place that you worked? Uh, Well, I went directly from, almost directly from college to the Coconut Grove Playhouse. It was again uh, by chance. My whole life has been somewhat of luck and chance. Um, I came to New York uh, after graduation, And you know, in those days, you had to take a very uh, stringent exam to get into the uh, scenic designers' union. Oh, it was uh, it lasted two days. It was uh, you had to first day you went to a a classroom, a room with a desk and. I forget where it was, one of, you know, Hunter, probably one of the big classrooms. And you had to design a show and draw it and paint it and do everything in one day. And then the next day on the weekend, you had to go out to one of the scene shops, usually Nolan's scene shop out in Brooklyn or somewhere, and then paint some scenery. Oh. So it was really a stringent test. Yeah. And it terrified everybody. I failed it uh, two times. Oh. And uh, I've known people that have taken it five times and failed. Nowadays, they don't do that. They're so well, yeah. they're they're not. In, they're let, but the union is less interested in. Uh, I think they're interested in having a lot of members and making money,
0: yeah. and then
1: less interested in t- making sure that the people uh, are sufficiently uh, technically uh, proficient. You know. Yeah. So they don't have a test anymore. You just show them a portfolio, which, of course, I did too, which to apply for the test. But uh, nowadays, they just show a portfolio. And if the judges think it's uh, competent enough, uh, they, they just take, accept them into the union. Of course, nowadays, also, you have these schools like Yale and NYU that have superb you know, uh, postgraduate uh, design courses where they really, they really are, learn something, you know, I I, frankly, what I learned at the University of Miami was pretty basic. And I had to relearn everything and really teach myself from scratch after getting out. But anyway, I came to New York, I flunked the test. But I I knew someone, uh, this man, who was a painter, a scenic, scenic artist here in New York, or had been, maybe he was retired. But he was an old friend of the man who taught design at the University of Miami. And so I had gotten in touch with him through uh, that teacher, Gordon Bennett was his name, Gordon Bennett. And uh, this this man uh, got me a, a job. He, he he helped me a little on the on the test, but I, I failed it anyway. He told me, uh, well, he looked at my portfolio and made suggestions. But then he got me a job as a paint boy, which was a very menial job in the paint studio of CBS uh, TV oh. uh, production of, uh, studios over there on 50, 57th Street, way west on 57th Street, which mm-hmm. was a job it paid. I forget about a hundred dollars a week. You could live on a hundred dollars a week in those days. Okay. And uh, basically it was cleaning paint pots and washing brushes and cleaning up after the scenic artists and just keeping the, uh, you know, the, the, everything tidy and organized. Yeah. Which was pretty grungy work, but but it was fine. You know, I learned a lot just watching those, those scenic artists working and, uh, Anyway, I was eventually fired from that because they were always having uh, over, overtime, which they loved, of course, because if you worked overtime, you got much more money. But that was the year the Royal Ballet was in town with Margot Fontaine and everybody at, at the Old Met. And I just had to see that. So I I was buying op- ballet tickets, you know. Oh. And so they'd say, well, we have overtime tonight, Peter. And I'd say, oh, I can't go tonight, uh, I have ballet tickets. So eventually I got fed up with that, you know. Yeah. And so I was let go. And so uh, I decided, uh, uh, my friend and I, we decided if we're going to be waiters, which seemed to be the next choice, we would not, didn't want to do it in New York where it was cold because now it was getting to be November getting to be chilly, we went back to Florida, where, where we knew people and where we had been, you know, where it was warm. And I thought, well, I to be a waiter in Florida is much nicer than being a waiter in New York. Yeah. Anyways, by chance, as soon as I got back um, to Florida, I got a call. I had been doing design work for the uh, a, a little ballet company. It wasn't the Miami Ballet then. It was the, the the Ballet Guild of Miami, I think it was called, uh-huh. the Miami the Ballet, Ballet Guild. Uh-huh. And they used to perform in the Dade County Auditorium. It was very, you know, it was a dance school, basically, and they'd have uh, uh, recitals and show, show off their prowess. But they always had an orchestra. They had their own conductor. And quite a nice, uh, quite. Uh, and it was run by a man named Thomas Armour, who had been in the Ballet Rooster Monte Carlo, and he had danced. Uh, he had danced the, some of the M- Nijinsky roles. Oh. So he was very knowledgeable and a charming, wonderful, delightful man. And, yeah. Um, and I had done quite a quite a few ballets for them, uh, Costumes and scenery, all that. It was very limited. What we did in very little money, but we did stuff. But anyway, he called me, and he said a friend of mine uh, works uh, does work at a place called the Surf Club, where they do every weekend they do a gala ball, a gala party, Mm -hmm. and which they decorate these two ballrooms with scenery type decor. And they're looking for someone to do that, and we we've recommended you, and you should go and meet uh, Mr. Alfred Barton, who ran the club. It was a club for millionaires; they are all millionaires. It was up way uptown on Miami Beach. Uh, people like the president of General Motors and so forth and joined, lived in it, and anyway, so I I, I got that job, like, designing these parties. Uh, and, uh, I had a, we had an empty cabana, which they gave me, uh, as a studio at a drawing table. And I would turn out these, uh, decors, these, uh, theme every week, it was a different theme. And I remember one was, uh, we did, a, which I rather like, there was a Gauguin part theme. And so, uh, we did all these sort of Gauguin, uh, figures and, and foliage and everything—it was quite colorful. And then I remember another one—they had a southern, uh, you know, this sort of southern steamboat, you know, the the old paddle wheel, Mississippi steamboat uh, theme, and so on. There were Various themes. And then one theme I remember was for a new a new car that one of a one of the companies was was doing, and we had to. It was in honor of this new automobile design, and so I, I did a very sort of um, not well technical looking sort of metal shapes, modern shapes, and so forth. that suggested uh, suggested car designs, sort of fifties. Remember, it was fifties where the cars all had t- tail fins, you know, yeah. things like that. Anyway, that so I did that. Uh, that again, was a hundred dollars a week, which was. Which was uh, fine, you know, I could live on it, especially in Florida. But it did require a, a three-hour bus trip there and back every morning to get there, because I didn't have a car, didn't drive. But um, meanwhile, at that time, the Coconut Grove Playhouse had opened, and that was the year they did Waiting for Godot, and and uh, they did the fame infamous. Production of Streetcar Named Desire with Tallulah Bankhead, oh. which, which they then brought to New York at City Center, which was a gigantic flop. <laughs> Although Tallulah, she was really quite good uh, in Florida, but when she got to New York, all her fans, you know, uh, she was by then she was considered sort of a comedian. You know, she wasn't a serious actress, which she had been in her youth. So when she got to uh, City Center, all her fans were there, and they just sort of laughed all the time. Mm. And so the production was a disaster. And she, seeing that she had her audience there, that were that were uh, were laughing, she sort of started to camp it up, uh, and uh, the play went out the window. I remember Tennessee. Tennessee said she uh, she ruined my play. She shit on my play. (laughs) Anyway, uh, but. they had the people that were running the Grove Playhouse then were also the people that ran the, the uh, Summerstock Theater in New Hope, Pennsylvania, Lambertville, New Hope, Pennsylvania, which is the Summerstock Theater, which I think is still there. The New Hope, New Hope Country Playhouse, or something like that, and they all had to get back up to Pennsylvania to New Hope to start their summer season. So they had, I think, three more plays that they needed a a designer for. And I had done a play, uh, while I was working at at the surf club, they did a play uh, at the Ring Theater of Alnui's The Thief's Carnival, which is a wonderful, wonderful, funny, delightful play. And it was the director of the play was one of the directors that I had done the previous year had worked with you know at the at the university theater so and as always, there was no one there who wanted who could design it in the in the theatre department, so they called me they knew I was there in Florida, Peter, can you come and do this in your in your spare time so speak? and I said, "Sure, I'd love to." And so I had designed this uh, production for uh, Thieves Carnival. And I did it all the style of Dufy. He was very painterly. And uh, the people from the Cocon Grove Playoffs had come to see it by chance. And so they were impressed with my design. And so they asked me if I would finish out the season at the Cocon Grove Playhouse. And I said, sure, of course. So I did. We did, um, what was that, that oh, uh, Bill Inge play, where, where they're in the uh, sort of uh, roadhouse, in a snowbound in a roadhouse, uh, I think of, there was a film with Marilyn Monroe.
0: Bus stop. bus stop?
1: Bus Stop, exactly. They did Bus Stop, and then we did a play called Happy Birthday which was had been a play in the 20s or 30s, which had been some of a hit with Helen Hayes, but we did it with Imogene Coca, who was a oh. current star, you know, TV st- comedian at the time. And then we did a play called Nina, which was sort of a French farce with Edward Everett Horton, who was a comedian, you know, elderly uh, character, actor, comedian. who was quite a star in all. of movie star, Everett Horton, and he was the lead. And uh, the ingenue was, believe it or not, playing an ingenue in a little black dress, Colleen Dewhurst, it was Colleen Dewhurst playing this little French farce, Soubrette, which uh, she certainly never played again. But of course, she was very good. You, You could tell, she was a wonderful actress. At that time, she was married to someone else. Jim, someone who uh, was an actor too. Uh, I don't. I think he was there in a smaller part. But anyway, Edward Edward Everett was a delightful, funny man, and he toured relentlessly in summer stock. And I worked with him two or three times further in different theaters in the summer. And he always remembered. And he always found these vehicles in which. The star, and comedian star of the play was an older person, an older man.
0: Yeah.
1: Anyway, and so uh, that's how I put my got my foot in the uh, door of the Cocon Grove Playhouse. And then I went back for the next uh, two seasons, oh. uh, which was, a, it was winter, winter season, winter stock, where we did a play every two weeks with stars. Oh. And then in the summer, I would do summer stock. Where we do a play every week with stars. Mm-hmm. I did that for for three years, I and mean, then came to New York and began working here.
0: So I want to ask you about an early job you did once you did come back to New York, which was you were the scenic assistant on four Broadway shows with Redhead and Once Upon a Mattress and Keen.
1: So I did. I was in, I was the, the Eckhart's assistant. And um, Once Upon a Mattress, and, and a couple other things.
0: Yeah. So what was the experience like of working on these big hit shows when you were starting out?
1: Well, I, I, basically, I, I, uh, the thing that one did uh, in, in those days, and perhaps they still do it now, is to try to get work as an assistant with one of you the, the stars designers, uh, you know, on New, in New York, my Broadway designer. And I was very fortunate that I took my portfolio to Ruben Teretunian, and I worked with him on and off, well, pretty steadily actually, for about five years. He was brilliant. He's a genius designer. I mean, he was a wonderful, wonderful designer, and a charming, wonderful person. But I also had time, free time, and I worked with Bill and Gene Eckhart on some stage plays and on a couple TV things. Yeah. And I also work, worked with uh, Ed Whitstein on Keen, oh, yeah. uh, and uh, which was his first Broadway show. Uh, I was, uh, and then uh, with uh, uh, with Robert O'Hearn. I worked with Robert O'Hearn on, on some Shakespeare at at, uh, at Shakespeare in in the Stratford, Connecticut Shakespeare Festival. Uh, I did three productions with him as an assistant. So I mean that's where I that's where I really learned uh, yeah. my craft, especially especially with Ruben, yeah. because he was so brilliant.
0: So I want to ask you a general design question, which is: What have you sort of thought in your career about the design being the sort of focal point of the show? Do you think that's a good thing or a bad thing?
1: well it is it isn't uh, you know the design is very uh, uh, well it's supportive of course of the production, but it's hardly the main thing yeah, the main thing is the book yeah. and then, and then and then between the star and the director those are the main things
0: yeah
1: design yeah. supports the book,
0: yeah. So I want to ask you about one of your first off-Broadway plays that you did on your own, which was one-way pendulum. So what was it start what was it like to sort of start your work in New York?
1: On one-way pendulum well that that, that was a, a peculiar play um, British a British play there was a, a set an interior set and then you had to turn it into the Old Bailey It had to become uh, the Old Bailey. There. Court, courthouse you know a jury jury box and ju- judge's stand and everything mm-hmm. and uh, um, uh, it was uh, I got some of it some of it uh, built and painted in a, in a scene shop um, instead of building it in a theater which often you had to do it in those days off Broadway. Yeah. Um it was uh kind of harrowing you know just we had to do a lot a lot of work in the theater. I remember I was spending hours up in the in the up so they had it was high there was space, so you could fly things uh-huh. and lights the light the like mm-hmm. pipes and everything were high and I remember being up on a ladder a lot up high in the heat it was a in this, I think mean, it was in September. It was terribly hot. And uh, anyway, it was all right. It wasn't, it wasn't a hit. It had uh, Anna Russell. who had a small part in it. She, she was a woman who would come to the house and eat the leftovers. <laughs> and so I had to fix up a table that basically had a drawer, which you couldn't quite write, underneath the first edge of the table where she sat, and she would sort of shovel the food into the drawer pretending to eat it, but it was going into the drawer under the table. It was fun to do. I was happy to do it, of course, because it was one of the first things I did in New York, I guess. I did two things which I felt were important off-Broadway design-wise. Again, were not usually successful, but as a design, I did something called the Confederates. There was a little theater on East 59th Street, was, uh off uh, near near bloomingdale the building has been torn down but it was a theater called Theater Marquee. Oh. and it had a a little a little stage, little theater it only seated i'm mean, seated about 75 people a small stage with a very low ceiling but the uh had a big lobby and there was a, a bathrooms and things for the audience it had been the studio, in the past, for several famous dancers like Ruth St. Dennis and uh, La Merie who La Marie, I think, was her name. She was a sort of a, did sort of Indian dances, uh, and, and uh, there was a Spanish a famous Spanish dancer in the twenties, and the whole interior of the theater. Was done in well, they decorated in the 20s and had Spanish tile in the bathroom bathrooms, and uh, there was a huge fireplace in the lobby, sort of Renaissance, big stone-carved fireplace sort of thing. that used to be well done in the 1920s. But so it was kind of a nice uh, off-Broadway theater. But the stage itself was very, very small. And the first play that I did, the Confederates was uh, written by this woman who had written, it was a novel, she'd written a novel. It was about Jefferson Davis's wife and uh, whatever, God knows what was going on, but her son directed it, and it was one of what we would call a vanity production, (laughs) and, uh, but... And I, I, but there you it was a, it took place in the Civil War, and you had you had some, quite a few locations, different locations. And of course, that tiny theater't uh, there were no wings, there was no backstage, there was nothing. The ceiling was only about seven foot feet high, or seven foot six or something. It was ridiculous. And uh, so I decided uh, to to make the changes of, of location. I put, uh, I did it with, uh, I created these two panels, maybe, I think there were two, two or three panels, which were like curtains, but they were webbing, upholstery webbing, which is that, that webbing that you see on the top of drapes, uh, which is, it uh, looks, uh, it's made from, made from jute, it's very rough, rough uh, fabric woven. Uh, upholst- it's up- upholstery webbing anyway, and it's about uh, three inches wide. Mm-hmm. And I made these panels uh, in which uh, vertical uh, upholstery webbing hung vertically with spaces between, a couple inch spaces between them. And they were all painted gray. And I had these, uh, they were hung on tracks. Yeah, which were attached to the ceiling uh, and you could move them slide them quickly from one one position to another from, from stage left to stage right to center stage and they the two, the two panels or three panels that I had would move in separate and create new spaces on the stage and then you had furniture of course and you could and then to accent and the reason I did all these verticals was because the ceiling was ceiling was so low, you felt oh, that oh. being oppressed by the oh. low ceiling. And I felt that if you had strong verticals all over the place, that that would help def- uh, fight that, you know. Yeah. And so we had, uh, along with the, with the mm-hmm. with the curtains, with the panels, the moving panels, I had two or three metal pipes which were attached permanently to the floor, to the ceiling. And on them, I could hang objects.
0: Oh,
1: yeah. So, uh, we had to have a portrait of of uh, um, Verena Howell Davis, the the wife of, of uh, Jefferson Davis. And we had some uh, battle flags, Confederate battle flags, had to be hung to suggest suggest different locations. Anyway, so that was... That was all. It was very simple, but with really these simple uh, vertical moved moved around in different locations, and then you could hang things on those pipes.
0: Yes.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it always amused me because uh, the play that had been there previously had been designed by Ming Cho Lee, oh. and he had been he was at that time working as an assistant with Joe Messina. And I don't know what the play was. I didn't see it. I don't, even, I don't remember the name or anything. But at the Theatre Marquis. And this was in hmm, 1959, 1959 or 60. He had, he had done these sort of cutouts, plywood cutouts and with blue, Melzina blue on the edges and so forth. I saw those. But he came back by the theatre uh, while we were hanging a show. And he was most taken with the idea that I could have these pipes and you could hang things on them yeah. and then uh, I always say he took that idea and went and flew with it because he did a whole series of operas for New York City opera in which there were pipes, and he had sculptures hung on them of sculptures of saints and finners. and he did things in the uh, in the, the court theater in in the park. He had oh. pipes. Everything he did the first couple of years of his life had pipes in it. Yeah. Which he had, I will say, he basically got that idea from my little set for the Confederates. Oh. But anyway, the next set I did there, which which did get me some other work, was a play called, we called it Noontide. And it was a play by a, Claudel, Paul Claudel, was a French writer. And it had been called in French, patage de midi, which means cut of noon. But they translate into noontide. And uh, it had two sets. One was on a a ship. They were sailing on the Indian Ocean. And the second set was in a Chinese, a ruined Chinese temple. It was a very... (laughs) a lot of uh symbolism french french uh, he was a he's a he was a famous catholic french playwright and writer yeah. paul claudel his sister had been the lover of rodin and uh, she went crazy and he put her he put her in an asylum and never did anything about her he was very cruel to his sister but mm-hmm. she was quite a clever she was a wonderful sculptor and had been Rodin's mistress for a while, now, but uh, you can read, there's a, there's a movie about her actually, uh-huh. about, uh, exactly. exactly, that's, that's, yeah, it was about, mm-hmm. that was his sister, anyway, the Paul Claudel was the brother, he was a well-known French writer, and, mm-hmm. uh, mm, sort of mystical, uh, mm-hmm. spiritual thing, and uh, yeah. I did this, uh, u shaped it well, the was supposed the omega the shape of the omega was was necessary for the for the last scene in the ruined uh, chinese temple, and so I had this uh, well, again that we had no wings we had no nowhere to store anything yeah. so i I did this uh with uh, strips of wood on tubing, uh, t- tubing that uh, Lightweight aluminum tubing. I mean, it was sort of like a looked like a train like train tracks, you know, with, with the, the ties were the strips of wood, and it was done in an omega shape, a big U shape, and that in that I used that uh, as part of the ship, and then there was a, a fabric hung over. They were protected from the sun, supposedly. Uh, And then on the cut of noon, this this drape that cut practically in the sun flipped back and exposed them to the sun. Mm -hmm. And then uh, the background, I had my my wonderful artistic cousin painted it for me, but I asked him to do it. It's like swirling, uh, curling, swirling uh, shapes in gray and silver. painted just on the back wall because there was, the stage was only about 12, 14 feet deep, you know, it's nothing. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that set got a big mention in the uh, reviews oh. and uh, it got me a job oh. doing a, a ballet set. We, we did three, four ballets at the, fa- the Fashion Institute oh. FIT's auditorium in oh. Flint, And uh, it was a wonderful evening. I did one set in the costumes, which I used that. He said he had seen the production. He said, I want that same shape, that omega shape, but if you can make it so it can move and twist, which I did, I I used plastic, I used uh, fiberglass. And we hung it on wires, and it could it could change its shape, the omega shape, because the fiberglass moved, you know, and uh, it was flexible. And I had pieces of Lucite attached to it here and there, so it suggested well, whatever it suggested, the heavens or the zodiac or something like that. But it changed shape because it was hung on wires. Uh, not during the dance, it moved. But there were four other designers. One was Ruben Caratune, and he did Piero Lunaire, which that was a great success. It was done all over the world with his set, which was white, sort of, uh, gymnastic bars, which the dancers hung on and swung from and everything. That was done, he did that way. Piero Lunaire with the Schoenberg. That was a great success. And then, well, uh, Kim did something, uh, and that she, oh, she told me later that was the first time she designed for ballet, and uh, she did uh, sort of, a, uh, a, it looked sort of Asian uh, costumes. These three ballets made up the evening with the three different designers. Yeah. And that was a wonderful fellow producer called Jack Prince, who was a great, uh, great helper. He helped, uh, he had a very successful uh, company that did fabric design uh, in New York. So he had a little money from his business and he was a great ballet to man. He worshiped the ballet, he was of course a friend of Glenn's and that's how it happened. But he, he produced it and used all of us to design it. But, uh, you know, being an assistant, uh, it was uh, enormously helpful. Yes. And I, I must say, Bob O'Hearn was very generous, and th- there were a couple things came up that he was asked to design, and he, he couldn't do it. He was busy, so he said, get Peter, get Peter to do it, he can do mm-hmm. it. And so uh, one of the things was the ballet in the Old Met. I designed an original production for Anthony Tudor called Concerning Oracles, and it was the last original production at the Old Met before they tore it down. It was a ballet evening. They they had a ballet company there at the Met, which I don't think they quite do anymore. And it was run... The directors were Anthony Tudor, who was a world-famous choreographer, and Alicia Markova, who had been a world-famous ballerina. So they they ran the company at the Met at that time, and it was... uh, So Bob passed that on to me. He also passed the production of Hansel and Gretel to me that was had to be done in Tulsa, Oklahoma, which he didn't want to go to do. When Nathaniel Merrill was the director who did so many things with Bob at the Met, at the new Met, as well as the old, I guess, that house in Gretel, I loved doing that, it was fantastic. I enjoyed that production enormously. Going to Tulsa was a quite a marvelous experience. And we did it again, it was to, uh, I think, Dallas, and the Jimmy Jones Auditorium. But uh, it, it worked. It worked in you know another big theater as well, Hansel and Gretel. Uh, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Well, I'd love to talk about another very famous ballet you designed, which was Jules in nineteen sixty-seven.
1: Yes. Okay. Well, uh, that that of course mm-hmm. became a, by by luck has become a classical big hit. Yes. And I, no, I now do it all over the world. Mm. In fact, they yeah. just got a call or an email of the other couple of days last week, they want to do it in Korea, South Korea, oh. which well, I do not want to go to South Korea. <laughs> but uh, I, have, I have a wonderful assistant now who works with me, John Sullivan. So he's gonna go do it if it happens. But oh. that happened. I had been assisting uh, David Hayes as well. Span- he was a surrealist. He had been a, a surrealist oh. during that epoch and uh, he was a designer of uh, the don quixote don quixote and several mm-hmm. other ballets for Balanchine. they had known each other from since the 30s and uh, but he was a painter he really wasn't a designer so i had been and the don quixote ballet was a huge ballet It was a, a full a full evening like five five acts five different oh. sets and costumes and everything and, I was his assistant. He would do these paintings and I would translate them into stage sales. It was quite quite an exciting job. And uh, they knew I had been working for David. I worked with David Hayes on the original Midsummer Night's Dream also. That was in the old city center when City Center had been at, when New York City Ballet had been at City Center, not at the State Theater. Anyway, so I I was familiar to Mr. Balchin. And they had a, a, before we did Jewels, It was another production, Brahms Schoenberg, that Madame Karinska had said she would design because Mr. Balshin just wanted he just wanted soft curtains, drap draperies, oh. and then Madame never got around to it. So they called me at the last minute and said, "Oh, Peter, 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 quickly! We need to we need to have a set in two in two weeks." Uh, draperies for this ballet, uh, a Brahms-Shermer quartet. So we somehow uh, threw that together and it worked. I got it, you know, my, uh, my journals working for Balanchine are on Kindle. Oh, you can get, you can get them and read them if you want to.
0: Oh, I I will. They
1: they describe all of this. They were published originally by Daz Chronicle. Oh. Over three three issues, because when I began working with Balsh in the City Ballet, I felt that this was pretty important. So yeah. I began keeping a day-to-day journal of how we did the productions and anyway, and I have the whole description of how uh, the original jewels and everything was done. Oh. plus a whole plus a whole lot of other stuff. It's uh, I think you'll find them the journal's quite fascinating and they're quite funny, and yeah. it takes a uh, through Zurich, I did do a midsummer night stream in Zurich, and then we did some television, and it's all there, all of the well, the uh, in- funny incidents and peculiar happenings that brought those productions together. During the Schoenberg, then they had the, he was doing jewels, and he wanted something for jewels, and then for somehow or other, he 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 didn't want to use his other designers that he used all the time. He 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 used to get annoyed. Uh, from time to time, for who knows why, with his designers, and he wouldn't. He got upset. I think it was Madame Karinska's fault, really, because Reuben had done they had done ballet imperial, and Reuben had had these blue curtains, on, drapes on the side as wings. Beautiful. He did a beautiful production, and Madame had done the clothes, and she had some blue, blue in the tutus or something, and she. F- was convinced that Reuben's blue and the curtains clashed with her blue tutus. so she did. she was against Reuben at that time, of course, Reuben and Madame and Mr. Baushe they all spoke Russian to each other. It was a, It was a fantastic sight, they were all chattering away in Russian. And, only they knew, they knew what they were doing, but no one else could tell. Yeah. But anyway, so anyway, I got to do Jules, and it turned out to be a mad rush again, but it, it worked out. I was yeah. uh, I, I was never totally happy with it, and Clive Barnes, whenever he saw it, gave me a horrible notice. He was just mean oh. about it, and I sort of, well, sort of dismissed it and never thought about it again. <clears throat> but then it became this hit, which so I ended up... Uh, I went to Russia, I did it, reproduce it in Russia, I reproduced it at La Scala in Milan, and uh, I reproduced it in, in the Opera House in Dresden. And then, and then of course, uh, in 2004, well, when I had done it in the uh, Kirov in, in Russia, in St. Petersburg, um, they suddenly realized that I was still alive, because <laughs> Madame Karinska had died by then, and. The production had gone and gone, and had, well, the old other people had designed it. So there had been two other designs, I think. One, anyway, well-known Broadway designer. Robin Wagner was one. Oh, but yeah. those had those had gone by the wayside also, uh, and so they suddenly just, they needed to revive Jules, and since they suddenly realized I was still alive, because I had gone to St. Petersburg and redone my original decor. Peter Martins called me and said, we want a new decor, uh, totally new. We don't want it to look like the old one. Give us something new, and I was thrilled to do that. And so the new production is three different sets, because as you know, the ballet is uh, emeralds, rubies, and diamonds, with three different composers, French, and uh, Stravinsky is rubies, Fauré is French, the first emeralds, and uh, Tchaikovsky is the diamonds. The last act, and uh, so I did three. And we went. I worked on it for a year, and uh, I'm very happy. Still, it's still in the repertory They do it, so I'm, I'm still very, very happy to have that alive here in New York. And the ruby set, I'm very, very happy with. Uh, the 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 diamond set, I'm not that pleased with. Really. I had to make some changes that Peter fussed about. Oh, I had a, okay. asymmetrical wings, and he didn't like them. He wanted them symmetrical, yeah. which did not which did not help. I don't. I didn't think. But anyway, it's there. There it is.
0: Yeah. So I want to go back a little bit in time to ask you about designing plays for Bleecker Street, which was Thornton Wilder, which
1: was another. Well, that was a, that was another mess. Well, that was the only production I was ever fired from. Oh, that was when uh, Jose Quintero was directing that. Well, Jose Quintero, for all his fame, was it, uh, not a very good director, and he, he was a drunk. Oh. And and uh, the plays for Baker Street, which Thornton Wilder had written especially uh, for them, there are supposed to be there were supposed to be three or four more, but they never got written. Oh. Those three. Uh, he asked me to do and and david he didn't, david didn't David Hayes, who always designed for for Jose uh, couldn't or didn't want to do them and It was in the theater on Bleecker Street, where it was at that time. They moved from Sheridan Square to Bleecker Street, which you may not know. The original theater circling the Square was at Sheridan Square, in the space that had been a nightclub in the space that is now. Well, the whole thing was torn down and now it's there's an apartment house with Gristidi's supermarket in the in the first floor. But the original circling square had been there. And then they moved to Bleeker Street and took over this space and it was much bigger than the original um uh, Square Theater. And the and the stage was a big rectangle stretched out which was uh when they moved uptown, they recreated that. That's an even more awkward space, it's just hopeless. But uh, that space, well, anyway, there it was. And, and uh, I designed, I thought, a, a, a nice production, but I foolishly, uh, I never do lighting. I don't do lighting, or I haven't, or I, or I haven't done, too it requires too much quick thinking of mathematics, adding up wattages. Uh, and, and votes and all of that. I am not, I can't do that quickly in my mind. Mm-hmm. And it's technical, much too technical. I'm a drawer, an artist, and a painter. So uh, this person I've been working with off Broadway who'd been building scenery, wanted, he was a lighting designer and uh, he said, and I agreed to let him design it, design the lighting. Well, he was not a good lighting designer. Uh-huh. And we were on, um, we were in, and everything and the, it was just a mess and Jose was drunk of course, and not interested in, in, in uh, compromising or discussing anything. So he just decided the lighting is so horrible and the set that he didn't understand the set because I had one was supposed to be a, an arcade when Saint Francis walks with, with uh, Saint Agnes or whoever she was uh, through this arcade and I was... And they, you could have a few things flying in that theater. There was height in the ceiling.
0: Yeah.
1: And I was going to suggest the arcade with uh, a group of, of chrome arches, just, uh, just the arch, the curve of the arch on wires. And I was going to have about 10 a, uh, a or a dozen of them creating an arcade down the middle of that long, long space and they would, they would have been pulled up out of sight earlier. But then when we did that one play of St. Francis, they would lower in and create an arcade. Well, Jose never got what that was supposed to be. Anyway, that was a mess. I was I was fired. They kept my name on it, oh. but the only thing we kept that they kept was a three, I had three panels uh, covered in linen, upstage neutral sort of beige linen, which, which were on pivots, and they could pivot. I think the other side was perhaps blacker or or brown, much dark browner uh, burlap or something, I forget. And those, those they kept and those pivoted to great, changed the color of the space a little and then gave entrances. Uh, and that was all that was left of. I had other things that were supposed to come in. Uh, there was some foliage that was supposed to come in. And then, of course, I... The supposed to be a baby, which was an adult. I think it was Dick Libertini, was supposed to be a baby, and we, we built this baby carriage that he could fit into. And that was sort of a com- comic uh, yeah. comic tale, comic yeah. uh, place for one of the plays. And that, of course, they used, they had to use that. Cause, uh, but anyway, the place for Beaker Street was uh, not an achievement of.
0: Uh, yeah. Well, I'd love to go on to your Broadway debut, which was Baby Want a Baby Kiss. Baby Want a
1: Kiss. That and, was in 1964 with Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward. Frank Cassaro was the director. Um, well, that was because he had seen my my, my two plays at the theater marquee, oh. and which he thought was were brilliant, which, frankly, they were very good. <laughs> and uh, so he asked me out of the blue, to, would I design this uh, Baby Want a Kiss play. And so, well, we did multitudes of sketches and we finally worked out, uh, I thought, uh, for the character that they visit, that Paul and Joanne visit, is sort of a a friend of theirs, an old friend of theirs who's no longer in Hollywood, but they're the Hollywood stars and they visit him, but he's sort of a writer and lives in an ivory tower, very separate from the world. And so I did this sort of white gothic room and then i had a, a fireplace which was a, a central like a fire pit with a with a brass or copper uh, funnel well, to serve as a chimney over it and that was in the middle of the room so they would walk there they had to stage walking around it and then the one i did a prop which was a Uh, 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 I I made, I created out of a uh, uh, carousel horse, Mm -hmm. a rocking horse, but it was a big, big size, you know, not a child's rocking horse. It was an adult-sized rocking horse. Mm -hmm. Uh, That was, uh, Frank loved that. He felt that was the the best prop. I think they did the play in in Denmark later, and they Mm -hmm. took the rocking horse with them. Uh-huh. Uh, that in Denmark. That was a wonderful thing for them to use. I forget if I made, if I made him a unicorn. I don't think I made him a unicorn, because the, uh-huh. the horn would have been a little dangerous.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. But, of uh, but the, the course, that was produced by the Actors Studio, and that meant that... Um, Lee Strasberg. Yes. Yeah. Yes, that's what it was, Lee Strasberg. He, he was the produ- basically the producer, the actor's studio was the producer. And of course, he hated the set, hated it. He thought the set should be brown. Oh, yeah. Because the man, the man was a writer. Therefore, he should be in a brown, paneled room, dark like a study. Well, fortunately, the set was built, and he couldn't change that. But he, he didn't. i done the costumes for Joanne and, and the other characters, which were modern dress, they were, boy, the men were no problem. But I'd done this very, well, she, it was, she liked it, a cocktail dress mm. of chiffon and, uh, and with a beautiful coat that I copied from the latest Italian high fashion style. And uh, we had it made by this couture, wonderful couture, uh, on, somewhere in New York uh, called Manka Stark. And she just did couture gowns for people. It was a beautiful dress. But it was a cocktail dress, a short dress. Well, Lee Strasberg hated it. You know, and that wasn't that made no impact. So he threw that out and had uh, got Bill Blass or someone. He, want, he wanted her in an evening gown. Mm-hmm. To arrive in an evening gown and a fur coat. Which, it was took, play took place in the middle of the day. But, uh, uh, so that was what happened to that dress, that costume. So Joanne arrived in an evening gown and a, and a fur coat, but, uh, so I was not fond of Lee Strasberg. He had very, yeah. very limited imagination, <laughs> as far as I was concerned.
0: Yeah. So I'm curious to talk to you about The Mad Show, which you designed in
1: 1966 by... Mary Rogers and the, the Mad Show. Well, that was another strange production. Oh. The Mad Show uh, was a half design. It was, we used, uh, in the theater before, the play before the Mad Show came on a straight play that had been a success in England and was brought over. Led, Edward Edwardstein designed it. The knack, that was exactly. it. It was the knack. Anyway. And for some reason, Ed Whitstead got fired. Oh. I don't know, he didn't get along with the director or something. Something went wrong and Ed, Ed was let go. And they brought me in to finish it. I said it had been f- finished. It was all there. They just had some little tweaking and clearing up and tidying up and fixing up to do. Yeah. Uh, so that was the knack. And so when they were going to do the mad show, They didn't want to spend any money, so they said, well, just do it in the same set, the knack, and you just make this work, Peter. (laughs) And so I I did do, behind there was a window upstage, so I did that face of that Alfred E. Newman, you know, the mad fellow, you know, what me, what me worry guy. (laughs) And did that uh, blow, uh, big painting of the, his face outside the window. So he was looking in the window. And we did some other surrey dressing on the set. And then we had a front curtain. It was there. It was the, the director's idea. I think Stephen Vinever was the director. But uh, that uh, other very famous director was also involved. He was there all the time. Elaine May, I think Nichols, uh, Mike Nichols. Maybe Mike Nichols had done the Knack. So he was still hanging around. And anyway... He was there too. A lot of famous people were there. There were, were uh, Mary Rogers, Mary Rogers, who had done Once Upon a Mattress. She did one of the songs for the mad show, and and you know uh, Green and Condon and Green were there. There were all these people. They all were pals, you know. So they were all there all the time, fussing about things. But then we had a front curtain, which was to lift up, and you were to see all these legs, supposedly of the actors, just their feet, and the curtain would stick and see their feet, and then the curtain would lift up, taking the feet with them, <laughs> taking the legs with them. So it was a joke, like the show began with, with this uh, visual joke. Yeah. And so I, want, I needed someone to make these feet. You know, I, I sort of did sketches of what they should look like and high heels and shoes and sort of pants and so forth. And uh, I got Patricia von Brandenstein, who was then sort of an assistant designer hanging around town. And she made them for me in her apartment. She has since become a big Hollywood designer. So that's kind of funny. And then the show, it had Libertini, who had been in the the place for Beaker Street, and had Joanne Worley. And... uh, you know these funny, funny people and music and songs. anyway, it was sort of sort of a hit, I guess. I mean, I never took it very seriously, but it yeah. ran for a while, and then they used to revive it for uh, every Christmas for two years afterwards. Oh. they would bring bring it back. and I would always get a little royalty, so that was delightful. Yeah. but uh, it was nothing it was not something I took very seriously. Yeah. We just sort of did it, you know, we filled it. We filled in the blanks where they were needed.
0: Yeah, so I am especially curious to ask you about the boys in the band?
1: Right, the That band. was I did the original production, yeah. yes. Yes. In 68, uh, the same year that I did Dames at Sea. We did, had, oh. no, it's two hits in that same year. Yeah. Uh, a friend used to call me up and say, is this Harvey's House of Hits? <laughs> Yeah. Well, those are the only hits I ever had other than The Jewels. But anyway, you, you just need one or two. Uh, that that show we had done, at, at, uh, n- we had not expected it to be a success oh. by any means because of its subject matter. Yeah. And uh, we had done a, a workshop of it at a really tiny theater um, down in Soho. I forget the name of the street, but... Uh, it's down, it's below King Street. There's King Street and there are two or three other streets. Not Spring, it's just before you get to Spring Street. But I don't think Spring Street doesn't go through uh, Sixth Avenue. It's on the other side of Sixth Avenue. Anyway, it's, in, it's in a, basically a, a, br- a brownstone a house. Oh. And in the basement, they had made this. There was this little off-Broadway theater, which I think is still there. And there again, was a seven-foot ceiling. And we had to have an apartment uh, with an upstairs bedroom, which, of course, you couldn't do. And uh, I thought, well, we can't do that. And we just basically have a black space. And so I took small panels and had photographs of locations on them and put them sort the one suggested uh, the... Uh, the living room and one suggested the bedroom upstairs and then by the door, there's a doorway, people would go out and disappear and supposedly we were going to the bedroom. And then there was another side which had a bar or something, photograph of a bar. So the photograph idea came about uh, from that workshop where we had no space, no money. And then when we moved into the, the big theater, into Theatre uh, Theatre theater Four on Fifty Fourth Street. Well, we didn't have much money either. We only had the, the budget was a fifteen fifteen hundred dollars, one thousand five hundred dollars. But I wanted to do redo the photo photo idea again. You know, I, I liked that idea. I thought it would work. And then the set demanded a very fancy, expensive. Upper East Side apartment, which we simply could not afford. They wanted, yeah. wanted, we should have a an Oliver Smith glamorous apartment, which we had not anything close to that to do that. We were, it just ended up in a tacky mess. So yeah. I, I did the set with the photographs and just made, I went to the uh, magazine companies, I think House and Garden, and one other magazine company and asked if I could go through their files and pick some black and white photographs mm-hmm. to use on a, use for this purpose. And they said, Oh, sure, help yourself. Over there. They should gave me their f- access to their files. And I took a handful of photographs out that I thought would work. And I used them, I made the uh, I did a rough sketch of the shapes, and then I put them in. And I worked out a model. With using the photographs that I cut up and fitted it in, so sort of a photo collage. You've probably seen a, a reproduction of what that set looked like. I mean, yeah. it's in several of the books.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And uh, we didn't again have money to do very expensive big blow-up photo blow-ups. We we did not. So in those days, there were places. Well, you could get, you could take your passport picture or a small picture, and he said, "Blow yourself up to post, the poster size for I think five dollars or something." Yeah. And so I took these photographs to one of those places, and I said, "I want this piece blown up, but in, and obviously you have to do them in pieces." So we pieced it all together from poster size pieces of those photographs that I had got from the magazines. And we sort of did a patchwork of, of them on the sets. There were canvas sets, and we did it on the backs of the seats in the theater and put it together. Of course, everybody hated the sets. Mark didn't like it. The director didn't like it. They, mm-hmm. they just thought it was all just too much. You know, they really wanted a realistic set, a realistic, you know, typical set but we, we, we couldn't do it and I just went ahead and did what I thought we could afford and what would work. I thought the play, I thought basically the play was a very old-fashioned play and it needed, even though the subject matter was perhaps dangerous and new for there, for then, uh, it needed a, a, a decor that would look sort of avant-garde, you know,
0: Yeah. that would look like
1: something uh, modern, something fresh, something exciting. Because the play, again, was an, really an old-fashioned play. And that's uh, why I pushed for that. And no, uh, they couldn't really stop me because I had done the original workshop and Richard Barr was, uh, you know, he was for it. Richard was for it, yeah. the producer. And That'd the play fortunately was a hit and we went to London with it. And in London I could afford full, full expensive, full-size photo blow-ups. And we did it in in Denmark, too, with um, full-size photo blow-ups. But uh, but Mark came to me years later, and he said, you know, because he'd seen revivals of it with with more realistic, traditional scenery. He said, the only scenery that ever worked was yours. He said, Mm -hmm. the only one that worked. He said, the real scenery doesn't work. It's a mess. Mm -hmm. And when he wrote the sequel, he wrote a sequel called The Men from the Boys, which was uh, it's been done, it was done in uh, California, I think, was not really a success. but mm-hmm. he's in his uh, set descriptions of that of that manuscript that's uh, that uh, it's in well, it's been printed. Yeah. the set description says the set should just should be exactly like Peter Harvey's photo blow up collage. Oh. That's what the set should be like. We should do not do a realistic set. It should be a photo blow up collage of scene of an apartment. And he said the only thing I want different is is I want a cupboard in the wall that literally opens up and becomes a, a, a liquor a liquor cabinet. Oh. He, he said uh, because uh, the play Michael Michael has really uh, gone off the wagon and he's drinking again. So uh, that's part of the of the, the second version. So uh, anyway, that's the story of Boys in the Band for me anyway. But it, it I was very lucky again uh, it became a huge hit and it ran for a couple of years and yeah. and uh, I got a royalty from it and because my original fee was only $350. Oh, uh, that's how what, what things how things were done in those days.
0: Yeah. 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 So, I'd love to ask you about a comedy you designed, which was The Butter and Eggman. Oh,
1: yeah, that was at this Cherry Lane. Okay. Well, that was a, a delightful. I like that. Uh, David Christmas was in that, who was in Dames at Sea. Oh. Our ingenue was a girl, a woman now. She did Gypsy on Broadway later. But, oh, well, that, that was a 20s revival, 20s uh, uh, play. And... Um, I did a of the, uh, the original stuff, I think the models and everything are are at Lincoln Center, but whether mm-hmm. they've never catalogued everything. All my stuff is at Lincoln Center, but, but they've never gone through it and cataloged it. so mm-hmm. just sits there. In the twenties, I' would seen uh, photographs of of production sort of uh, stylized or simplified productions in which the set only went up uh, shoulder height. You didn't have a ceiling or height above. You just had the lower part. For mm-hmm. some, and the doors were, were proper height and everything. So I kind of followed that, uh, that look, that which I knew was a way that people had done scenery. Uh, some say some scenery in the 20s had looked like that. And mm-hmm. so I followed that kind of pattern and there were the uh, bedroom, the bedroom in the hotel. I think there was an office, a producer's office. I think there were two sets. But uh, there was one funny incident that happened. Um, the woman, there was a, a woman, woman's a sort of star character in it. She had, uh, I had worked with her before. She had, had done, she'd come down to the Cochrane Grove and had done burlesque with Burt Lahr. Oh. Uh, she was, uh, sort of real, real old, old time show business gal, you know, yeah. so we went in those days, next to the theater was a restaurant called the Blue Mill, which may, which I think there's still a restaurant there, but we it used to be, you could get a steak there for seventy five. We mm-hmm. used to go there all the time and and, and eat, have a quick meal, go back to the theater. Anyway, we we're all over there and she was telling stories, theater stories, and then She said, you know my idea. She said, you know who my, my the greatest director I ever worked with. She didn't say his name, but you know why I think he's the great director? Because when when I walked out on that stage, he would say, hit her with the pinks. (laughs) And that's why he's a great director, because he knew how to light me. When I walked out on that stage, he said, hit her with the pinks, which meant the pink light, of course. Mm-hmm. Anyway, she was, uh, uh, and I did a lovely dress in chiffon for her, which That's Betty so Williams made. Betty Williams was a, a lo- she helped a lot off broadway with, with clothes and costumes. She did the, built, the, she worked on Dames at Sea with me, built over most of those clothes, and she did uh, Boys in the Band with me, she did Butter and Eggman. Man, you know. I think they give her the credit for the clothes in Butter and Eggman, Man, but I actually designed them. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and she, she dead, she's dead now, unfortunately. She had a little a shop on 14th Street.
0: Mm. Mm.
1: But she did a lot of stuff for us.
0: So, so I'd love to ask you next about Dames at Sea.
1: Well, uh, that was uh, my other my other hit, which was, you know, f- brought Bernadette Peters to, to fame. Mm. And they had been doing it, as you probably know, at the Chino, the Cuffy for some time before uh, a shortened, much shorter version, a little one-act sort of sketch version. That had been done uh, with with Bernadette, and her sister did it too. Her sister performed, and she her sister used to do the same part, and Bernadette did it. Chino uh, and uh, Dick, David Christmas used to do it with them at Caffecino, too, and uh, that happened for me because a man named Jordan Hart was a producer who just died last year. Unfortunately, we were very good good friends, dear man, dear friend. Um, he had seen a production of mine called Noah's Flood that I'd done at St. George, George Church at, at, at the Savidson Square, in which the, the Noah's boat, the ark, had to be put together by the actors. Oh. And it was, uh, well, anyway, it was a nice production. There beautiful music. It was, it was a, a small, short opera, actually, by Benjamin Britten called Noah's Flood, based on the, the um, mis- mystery play of the Middle Ages, using the, the, that, that script, but re- rewriting it somewhat. It was Noah, Mrs. Noah, and the, the children, Ham, Shet, and Jacob Japhet, I think, and the daughters, and then all the animals. And the, all the animals were schoolchildren, which we had oh. masks. We had little tunics and just animal masks for them. But I I did it to look like kind of like a Byzantine, primitive Byzantine toy Noah's Ark and uh, uh, Mrs Noah was uh, Marie Powers, who had been the original opera singer in Minotti's The Medium, oh. and she'd been more or less in retirement. But she she was a, a quite important and wonderful uh, performer and singer. And mm. uh, anyway, she was Mrs Noah. And uh, it was produced or presented by this gentleman who ran something called the After Dinner Opera, and which was a touring company that they had small products. I did something for them too, of course. And he hired me uh, to do Noah's Flood because I had oh. done this other little opera for them. They had a, a sort of touring company that went around with a piano and, and a little stage that unfolded and they did little, little operas, comic operas as a rule. It was, it was quite successful for a number of years. And the, and the man, a couple of the performers, the, the Noah, Mr., the Mr. Noah, and uh, the, man, the voice of God who was up in the balcony were two of the singers at the after dinner opera always used. Mm-hmm. Aside from building the shipper, the ship, by the actors, we had the effect of the rainbow at the end, which I had done, as I did in Dames at Sea, with a big fan, which unfolded Mm -hmm. like a woman's, you know, a fan, but was done with uh, rainbow colors. Uh, Anyway, Jordan had gone by chance to see Noah's Flood at St. George's Church, and that's how I got Dames at Sea, because he had seen Noah's Mm -hmm. Flood and loved it. He thought the the ship and everything were just uh, terrific, and he thought I'd be the the right person to do games at sea. So that that's really how that happened. I thought it should look totally put together with with sh- string and and chewing gum, <laughs> like uh, like so many off off Broadway things were done then, like right? things the theater of the ridiculous used to do, you know. Yeah. So I did. I tried to make it look as tacky as possible. <laughs> With uh, cheap fabrics and and uh, uh, silver paper, just cheap paper glued on and and, uh, and a plastic mirror and anyway that was the whole idea and the clothes were, well only only the girls wore costumes but they were they looked kind of tawdry too and you know that was the whole I that was my approach anyway and. Uh, Everybody. Um, it, again, it was successful because it was a wonderful, wonderful show. And, uh, Bernadette was superb and funny, and Dick. Dick They were all wonderful. They were all wonderful. I still knew. Two of them are still around. Well, Bernadette's still around, of course, but but Joe Sicari's around. He played Lucky, and Sally Stark is around. She played Joan. Oh. David Christmas has moved on. I think he now lives in California somewhere anyway and the uh, the man who played the the director steve elmore uh, he he did die he passed on oh. and and Jordan passed on this past year, but anyway, we did that all over the place you know with yeah. success uh we did it in london uh we which was was good, was wonderful but, but we kind of did it wasn't a hit in London because the producers there there were other producers british producers plus Jordan decided to do a big ad for it on television. And uh, we felt after doing that, that he had given too much of the show away on this television ad. People saw too much of the show, so they thought, well, why do we want to go see that? We've just seen it on television, you know. (laughs) So it didn't have much of a run in England. It should have done better in England because it was a charming little theater in the West End. Anyway, and then we did it at Plaza Nine. We did a sort of abbreviated version of it at Plaza Nine in Plaza Hotel. They had a cabaret theater there, you know, for years. Yes. And we did it in San Francisco, and we did it at Las Vegas. If that went all over the place, so uh, obviously I made a little money on that. So I survived. My two hits.
0: So. I want to ask you about a Broadway show you did, which was a revival of Johnny Johnson, where you worked again with Jose Quintero as the director.
1: Yeah, that was in, in the hotel. Yes, that uh, theater that was in a hotel. I don't know if it's still there or not anymore. Uh, that was—I uh, love that production. It was wonderful. Then. The, uh, the great misfortune is we had Jose Quintero directing it, who was drunk all the time and had no idea what he was doing. So unfortunately it was a gigantic flop. But uh, it was a wonderful play, anti-war play. We did it at the height of the, of the Vietnam you know, this mess in Vietnam. It was an anti-war play against, based in World War One, And I did a sort of Brechtian production which... Uh, well, it, uh, I was very proud of how that production worked, uh, how it was supposed to work. And again, uh, Jose had no concept of how to do it. It was a script he didn't really understand, and he he knew he could. He was a wonderful director with actors. If he had a if he had a script that was tight, like a Eugene O'Neill, you know, script, Long Day's Journey into Night, or something like that. or Iceman Cometh. You know he could do it and then good actors and then he worked actors loved him he did wonderful things with actors and so with a good script he was fine because there there he could do it but with a script that needed some concept to it or a script that was not quite all there and really needed a director's hand to pull it together and make it yeah. work he was totally out of his depth which he knew and that made him drink all the more and uh, I remember we had a meeting about about it uh, during during, rehears- during dress rehearsals, and, and it wasn't going well, of course. And he, he said, well, I don't know that set. He said, I never knew that the set was going to look like that. And I said, Jose, you had a painted model of the set in your apartment for two weeks before we opened. So if the set, you didn't know what the set looked like, you obviously didn't study the model. You didn't look at it. Yeah. You knew what the set was gonna look like. So don't blame it on me. Oh. And then I gathered the producers and Ralph Williams who, was the, who played the lead. Went, and Lottie Lenya was involved with it because Kurt vile it was Kurt Vile music. Yes, yes. Yeah. You know, and Lottie yeah. was around, still alive then of course and she was there at rehearsals and everything and uh, they had a meeting with her and said we've got to save this production madame lenya if we fire jose cantero we can pull it together because he is screwing this up beyond belief mm-hmm. and she said no i cannot fire jose i owe him my oscar she was nominated for an oscar for the, the roman spring of mrs stone which is the only movie Jose ever directed, which is, which is kind of a mess, too, if you ever watched it. But it, it was a great movie. It had Vivian Lee in it, had Lottie Lenya, had uh, oh, that beautiful uh, male actor who, who's still a star. I don't remember his name. I'm blank on his name. But anyway, it, it's an interesting movie, and it was a Tennessee Williams novel that was made into a film. They made a screenplay of it. And it was all filmed in Rome. It was quite extraordinary. Anyway, and she played them, this woman, a procurist woman who would procure young men for, for this uh, for, for this Vivian Lee character who was Mrs. Stone, who was sort of fading beauty, who needed love. And she would provide these young men for her. Anyway, it was a great part. She was fabulous in it. But mm-hmm. she got a uh, uh, she was either, Given an uh, Oscar for supporting player, or was nominated. anyway, she felt she owed Jose a debt. Well, she mm-hmm. didn't because she did everything. Jose did nothing. Mm-hmm. but of course he's a was a charm, could be a charming man, and he charmed her. And so she said, no, we I owe him a debt. She cannot fire him. Mm-hmm. And so fortunately, I had uh, as the choreographer who uh, was this wonderful person who had been a major, major dancer um, with—who was the great modern dancer? Uh At 88, I forget things, forget names, you know, the
0: great— Martha uh, Graham?
1: Martha Graham, exactly, exactly. Uh He was the male dancer for Martha Graham for years. He did the original Appalachian Spring and so forth, Bertram Ross. Well, he see. We had to have transi- transitions. The play was broken up into very different scenes in a kind of Brechtian fashion, and there were you had to get from scene to scene. And I had this uh, set piece that rolled to different positions on the stage, and you would crank it, turn the crank, and a different picture would come up. And I had these expressionistic drawings. Of different locations, World War trenches in the battlefield, uh, hospital scene, and various, you know, different scenes uh, in a Brechtian fashion. And these had this uh, set piece had to be rolled to a different place on stage, on the stage, and then that scene would, would, then you'd do that scene, and then you had Mm to go to the next scene, which were, they were all very different. There was a very chopped up fragmentary kind of uh, approach yeah. to a play, but it, 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 it that was the point of it, you know, that was the way it should be done. Yeah. But Jose didn't know how to do transitions. And, but fortunately, Bertram Ross was there and he staged them all and they were absolutely brilliant and they worked and it was just divine. Oh. And, uh, yeah. and it was a wonderful play, but it didn't quite pull together it Really, because it wasn't uh, it wasn't held together with a real directorial uh, hand, yeah. you know, and so it closed pretty quickly. Yeah.
0: So the next to last show that I want to ask you about is the Rocky Horror Picture Rocky, Show. Well, that
1: I wasn't I wasn't really the designer. I was the supervising designer uh, when uh, that was brought from London. Or maybe it was brought from the West Coast, from London and then the West Coast London and then the West Coast and then to New York and it was put into the Velasco Theatre. And because the production already existed, the Union demands a Union an American Union supervising designer to cover it. Because they don't just as you know, they only allow so many British actors in to act in equity. Uh, in New York and so on and so forth. We always have to have a union cover for these things. So I was just the cover supervising designer, and I really didn't do a damn thing. It was all there.
0: Yeah.
1: You know, I just had to be there and check that everything worked, which it did, of course. Yeah. So that was really, uh, I can't take any credit for it, even though I have a credit as supervising designer. I really yeah. didn't do anything.
0: And I do also want to ask you about the
1: Black Picture Show. The Black Picture Mm -hmm. Show was a great, great, great play. Again, I'm going to have to badmouth a major figure. (laughs) The Black Picture Show was by Bill Gunn, and it's it's interesting. Someone is at the present working on a biography of Bill Gunn, and they've been in touch with me and so forth. And they called me the other day. They said, you know, on... uh, on eBay, there's a sketch for your set for Black Picture Show for sale. Oh, I said, I said, really? I don't. Well, I, I said, what sketch is that? He said, Well, it's it's. Uh, you gave it to Bill Gunn. It's inscribed to Bill Gunn from Peter Harvey. Oh. I said, I, I don't remember that. I don't remember giving Bill a, a sketch. Anyway, I was able to find it on the computer, oh. on my iPad, actually. Because he gave me uh, the address. Oh, yeah. And it's a skill. Originally, we were going to do black picture show in the Armspacher, which is over in the Shakespeare Festival Theater, you know, on Lafayette Street. Yeah. You know, the, the old the library. Yes, yes. Yeah. You know that building. Yeah. And the, the stage there has two columns in the middle of the stage, which every designer has to work around. You can't. Get rid of them. They support the building, and so originally we were doing going to do the play there. And this sketch that I gave Bill was a first idea for a set in that uh-huh. theater in the Anspacher. and it's not a set that we ever did, but it was a rough idea. I did a later uh, design for that theater too, which is I like much better, which which is a, a, a different sketch, which. Uh, I don't remember if I still own it or if it's at Lincoln Center. But uh, anyway, we ended up doing it at at the Beaumont. You know, we did it at at Lincoln Center at the Beaumont. But first of all, we did it in Philadelphia at uh, whatever the theater, a big, huge playhouse in Philadelphia, major, major theater there, which has the same shape and style as the Vivian Beaumont. (laughs) And we did it there. And I thought at the time, this play is going to be as exciting as Streetcar Named Desire was when it first appeared on Broadway in the 40s. It was so brilliant. Bill Bill had written this, there's poetry in it. He had the the author, the play begins with this writer. It's about a writer who is... uh, writing a play, trying to write a screenplay or a play for Hollywood. And then the Hollywood producer and his wife or mistress, whoever she is, comes and visits and they, they talk and they work it out or, you know, man, he makes, he makes, uh, decisions to change the script and so forth. And anyway, it's a play about sort of theater problems between, uh, black playwrights and white producers and, uh, such but uh, bill had written it in really poetic terms and uh, he had a his his friend was Sam Wayman who was uh, Nina Simone's brother oh. and he had written music for it and he had a, a small combo it was off to the side through some windows he was through the French doors you could see him I mean you see the combo and they underscored most of the dialogue with this wonderful music. And uh, the, the set was uh, sort of uh, simplified, uh, skeletonized version of a colonial mansion, or uh, an 18th century American colonial house where he lived. And he talks about the house mm-hmm. in the play. And, and so you need a suggestion of, of, of that. I had some, you know, uh, fan light windows and then shapes and things. And I had projections. And Roger Morgan did the scenery with me, and we were doing projections in those days, which now have been so far surpassed by what people do. Mm-hmm. What we did was pretty primitive. But we had, because we had to switch to uh, to the, one poem the interior lunatic asylum or a home for the for the for the you know people who had a breakdown yeah. we had to we had to have that in there, but i would do I did that with projections and have the part of the set go into darkness and then the projection of bars and and this other location would come through the huge French doors where the which were outside where the little combo was. Anyway, the whole thing flowed. It flowed like poetry. The whole play did. It was really yeah. just wonderful. <clears throat> and uh, and I thought, well, we're really going to have a, a hit when we bring this into town. And then uh, toward the last, we ran a week in, in Philadelphia. Yes. Yeah. Good audiences. It was it was fine, and it was good. Good. The actors were wonderful. You know, we had uh, Carol Cole, who was one of Nat King Cole's daughters, was in it, and another black actor who's very very well known now. Anyway, Joe Papp arrived in Philadelphia and saw the play, and he said, "This is no good." <laughs> This has got to be changed. You bring this into New York, we're going to change this. Mm-hmm. So we brought it into New York, and he he sort of destroyed the play. You know, he cut out all the poetry, all the music. He said, he told me, you got to get some chandeliers and palms on this set. <laughs> I said, well, I don't think so. I, I did not. I never did it. <laughs> but uh, Bill was in tears. He destroyed Bill. Yeah. Horrible. It was horrible what he did to it. Turned it into this cheap, vulgar play, and of course it was not a success. Yeah. The Vivian Beaumont extremely difficult theater to design for because the seats come all around; you're looking from the side, you know. And I, I know I had solved it beautifully with this open, open set that I did, and uh, the the model is at Lincoln Center. But anyway, that's beside the point.
0: So. I want to ask you about your last Broadway show which has to date, which is The Effect of Gamma Rays on Man (laughs) on the Moon, Marigold.
1: (laughs) You you really want to know about the flops, don't you? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Well, that was with Shelley Winters, you know, and that's the story in itself. (laughs) I had done uh, those three plays by Shelley Winters off-Broadway, which were not too bad. She wrote three one-act plays, Call, uh, what were they called? Um, they were done at the Actors Playhouse, which is now a gay bar down on Se- um, 7th Avenue. But uh, it was another off-Broadway show where the cedar- ceiling is only seven foot high. But uh, uh, they were, oh no, uh, something about the, the feet noisy, some, the trips of a noisy passenger or something. Three, Three stories of a noisy passenger, I think, were the name of the plays. They were three short, three one-acts, one of which took place with a a young woman going to, I think, going to Paris. Going to Paris and meeting uh, some actor or some great writer or something. And the second one... One of the the, the one I really remember because it had Bobby De Niro in it Uh was this uh, an actress has just won an Academy Award and she ends up uh, by some drunken chance in in a cave up in the Hollywood Hills with this hippie Uh who was Bobby De Niro and she obviously spent the night with them both of in all three cases uh, they were. Sexual encounters with with three different men. You know, one the one, one with the thing in France, and then the, with, the, with the hippie Bobby De Niro in in the cave, and then the last one was with someone something to do with the uh, uh, McCarthy hearings uh, in in uh, New York or some some I don't know. Was had to do with the with the McCarthy McCarthy hearings and the, uh, you know. Communist uh, scare and everything from that time. Basically, yeah. they were based on her life, on Shelley's life. Yeah, you know, yeah. and and she was quite a handful. But anyway, uh, they were they were good because she cast it with actors f- from the Actors Studio, who were all good actors. But Bobby De Niro, he was about nineteen or twenty then, uh-huh. and he just took. He was unbelievable. Uh-huh this, he just sat, he didn't move, he just sat in, I think he didn't get up, he sat in a cross-legged position in this, uh, well, of the set, suggested a cave, just a suggestion. And uh, he just t- talked, and he, he, it just lit up, it was magic, it just was f- fantastic. Yeah. You know, the, you couldn't b- take your eyes off him, you couldn't believe who oh, this young, young, young man, this boy, how could he be so incandescent? Anyway, he was, and that was uh, that was quite an experience. But that is why I ended up ended up years later doing her revival of uh, *Man in the Moon* marigolds, yeah. Which uh, we did, we did it. We first did it in Long Beach, and we in California in Long Beach in a theater there. Carol Kane was in it. Carol Kane oh. played played the daughter. And then there was an elderly lady played the grandmother and then there was another young girl who was i think some distant cousin of of shelley's i don't know anyway carol kane was and was really the possible lead compared to and shelley winters was a star and then carol Kane was was the next important name she's a well-known actress important name well shelley was so jealous of Carol Payne, she tried to ruin her performance, but didn't oh. quite succeed. Oh. But anyway, uh, again, uh, Shelley was totally uh, in, undisciplined. She couldn't remember her lines. She, she was uh, somewhat uh, drinking at the time, you know, to, you know not all, not together, not there all the time. She would change the blocking. the blocking couldn't, could never mm. be, would never be set. And uh, she, she. When we got to New York, um, Carol Kane begins begins the show, telling about her uh, her experiment that she'd done in school with the moon mar moon marigold was growing. I don't know. river growing me from seeds and some. It was a sort of a, a science experiment. So that she'd won a prize for as a, in school, and uh, she. That one was a beautiful monologue, begins the play, and she would stand in front of, her. you know, she was on the set, it wasn't in front of the curtain, but uh, the set was sort of darkened and the focus was just on her, and Shelley didn't like that. She wanted her to be on her knees. She said, she has to deliver that line on, those that speech on her knees, and uh, which is not very nice to do to an actress, a fellow actress. Mm-hmm. And then she, her bedroom, uh, I had a couple steps and she was off off to stage right. And she would literally peek, open the door, the audience was in the audience, and she would peek through the door to make sure, so that Carol was on her knees. You oh. know. Then she would. Then she would come. You know, the play would proceed, and she would. She would screw up her lines. She wouldn't get them right, and she had to play some records, and she would fumble with them, and then, and she would. She would talk. Uh, She would forget the blocking. She would talk to people in the front row. She'd say, "Oh, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have done that." She'll say, "You know, it was indescribable. It was not a success. It was not." you know, the set was what it was. I mean, uh, it was a store, a store, sort of storefront, the inside of a storefront, you know, a street uh, storefront store that had brown paper over the windows and was obviously not a functioning place. It was sort of reclusive looking, and she was hiding away. She was reminiscing about when her father had a vegetable wagon and would drive it through the streets, you know, selling cucumbers and things. And she she had the scene when she said cucumber. She would imitate her grandfather calling out the the vegetables. Yeah. It was it was a nightmare. Anyway, that was that. That was marigolds. So my final uh, Broadway flop.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so you did a few more shows after this, but I want to ask you. Sort of why or how you came to decide to focus mostly on painting and
1: sort of leave the well after 30 years uh, 30 years plus uh, designing scenery in every form, uh, known to the known to man from you know ch- uh, churches to sub basements of churches to uh, tiny theaters with no with seven foot ceilings to Broadway houses to opera houses, you know, to uh, Lincoln Center. I was burnt out. Yeah. I did not want to do it anymore. I had had it. You know, it was it was not rewarding. I was getting old older, and uh, I could I could no longer I could no longer stay up all night and paint scenery in a in a in a church basement. I couldn't do that anymore. Yeah. I couldn't. No, no. And you know, unless unless you wanted to be, the five, four or five leading designers on Broadway, you really don't make any money. You yeah. know, it's, it's, it's uh, and it's, it's not a rewarding, financially rewarding, it's not rewarding. And frankly, artistically rewarding, it very rarely is. Very yeah. rarely. Because you're always in the hands of some uh, producer or producer's wife who wants something changed. Yeah. Which really doesn't help. and i had I, I'd always wanted to paint. i I always had painted in my spare time, and uh, I had was financially in such a position because I had sold a loft. I had a loft in Soho oh. that I had bought for seven thousand dollars. and and made it was a totally abandoned building, and i I had transformed it into a living space. And I'd spent some money on it. I had it was afforded to do that from my two hits in in uh, '68 and a few other things I'd done. And uh, but the, I never really believed in in uh, Soho. It seems always sort of halfway house. It didn't seem a true place. And then yeah. when it was artist space and everything, it was interesting and and good. You were there working and you had a loft space and that was wonderful. But uh, it changed, you know. It began to become uh, the artists were all uh, wives who did pottery or weaving, and her husbands were bankers or lawyers and had a lot of money. Yeah. And so it really, it really shifted. And then Soho, the main street, became a big mall, shopping mall, fancy stores, and and. Uh, we had, a, we had Dean and DeLuca down in our first floor. Oh, people yeah. would go into Dean and DeLuca. Elegant ladies would go in there and buy a sandwich or something, and then they'd be sitting on our front steps, <laughs> and you couldn't get the door open without knocking them into the street. I <laughs> had sort of got fed up with all of that. And the The price mm-hmm. of the loft, the maintenance kept going up and up and up. And uh, I didn't have, uh, you know, I was not making a lot of money, but I could, I knew I could sell the loft for quite a lot, much, much, mm-hmm. much more than I paid for it originally. Mm-hmm. Even though I probably put 50000 $50, dollars into it because we had to do new plumbing and new heating and and everything, you know. Mm-hmm. But uh, so that's I sold the loft. Mm-hmm. And uh, I sold it to this Broadway Broadway actor, not Broadway actor, Hollywood actor, oh, yeah. Richard Gere. I sold oh. it to Richard Gere. Mm-hmm. So I had money. I didn't have to uh, uh, teach school any, any longer at Pratt. I didn't have to do off-Broadway or the occasional show that came, came by. And uh, Mr. Bausheen was dead. I had no more work coming from him. And so I could go and paint, and so I did. Yeah, yeah.
0: So the very last question I want to ask you in our interview is, if there's a designer who's just starting out either in theater or otherwise, what advice would you give to them?
1: (laughs) Pick another career. (laughs) (laughs) Well, no, if you're really devoted to do it, dedicated, you have to, it's almost, you really have to, to love it madly, which which I did for many years. Yeah. I remember thinking to myself, "Oh, if I would work in any theater, if I just had to sweep a stage floor, I would be happy being in a theater." Well, that soonly, you you get uh, you soon get uh, disabused from that idea. Yeah. You know, but uh, anyway, um, if you can find a, a a good designer to work with as an assistant. I definitely recommend that you could, of course, go to Yale or to NYU to the graduate schools they have, and you really would learn a great deal. It would be a that would be a great uh, education. You'd come out well, well, uh, well instructed in, in how to how to design and the techniques and everything of it, because well, those are taught. Those two schools, are, you're taught by real, real wonderful professional people, and it's they're great, great uh, theater schools. But uh, you you have to uh, you have to put in your time, uh, working and learning. Uh, on and small they don't have summer stock anymore, which is of course the great uh, the great learner where you'd have to do a show a week, yeah. you know, throw it together and stay up all night the last night to get it on stage and all of that can't do that anymore. But uh, that, that, uh, those training grounds are few and far between. I don't think they have summer stock uh, the way we used to have it. If they do, it's uh, not with stars. It's, it's with uh, companies. They do like the, the theater in Rhode Island, where I work, the theater by the sea in mm-hmm. Matulik, Rhode Island. That, that theater is still there. It's a summer theater. But now they do musicals, only musicals. We we did Shaw when I was there, we did Shaw. We did Back wow. to Methuselah by Shaw, unbelievably. And uh, well, we had stars, so it attracted. We had, uh, you know, Groucho Marx, I and mean, he ran for two weeks, you know, filled to the, fill the house. Those people don't, don't go out there anymore, yeah. you know we had Diana Barrymore and uh-huh. previously the years, years before they had uh, Marlon Brando even, and they had Tallulah Bankhead and, uh-huh. and Edward Everett Horton. He came, you know, out, but that doesn't exist anymore. I don't know where there must be some theaters that do summer stock. Like the, the as I said, the theater in Rhode Island theater by the sea in Matunic. but they do musicals and they run them for three or four weeks and they have a, a Uh, the the actors that are there all summer they're they're young they're from new york they're trained and everything and they do fairly decent they do decent productions but uh it's not the kind of trial by fire of doing a show a different show every week with with a star that comes in and wants everything fixed differently you really learn there anyway uh I don't I don't recommend it unless you're driven 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 mad to do it love it love every moment of it
0: thank you and- so much for doing this it's been an honor to talk to you Listeners, thank you for tuning in and remember to come back next week when we are joined by Tony nominee Tony Sheldon. He made his mark on the Australian stage starring in productions of such shows as Torch Song Trilogy, I Hate Hamlet, Into the Woods, Private Lives, Falsettos, Merrily We Roll Along, Company, The Sisters Rosensweig, Noises Off, Once in a Lifetime, I Love My Wife, Dracula, A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum, Fame, The Glass Menagerie, The Fantastic The Odd Couple, The Shock Garden, Much Ado About Nothing, and Equus. He came from Australia to England and then to Broadway with his Tony-nominated performance in Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, and continued to take New York by storm in Amelie on Broadway, the bandwagon at city center encores, Charles Bush's Cleopatra, Hello Dolly with Clea Blackhurst at the Goodspeed Opera House, Icon with Donna McKechnie at NYMT, o' My Heart at the York Theatre, and so much more. He's also a familiar face on the cabaret circuit, having appeared at Birdland, 54 Below, Jazz at Lincoln Center, Le Poisson Rouge, and more. So remember to come back for that, and thanks for listening!